I kind of resisted getting into farming uh, at first because I didn't want to be known as Mike's wife. I just finished my PhD. I didn't want to be, you know, oh, the farmer, I, you know, I, right. oh, you know, his wife. I wanted to start my own kind of right. career path in this area. So this is the Real Food, Real People podcast. Finding your place on the farm, it's something that those of us who have been part of a family farm at one time or another have all struggled with, I think, but nobody really likes to talk about it. My name is Dylan Honkoop. I grew up on a family farm, and after over a decade in media, I'm coming back to the farming community, and I want to share their stories. This week on the Real Food, Real People podcast, I talk with a highly educated scientist and former college professor who now farms organic apples and cherries in central Washington. I wanted to know how she made the journey from the academic world into farming, and she opens up as well about the real struggles and triumphs on the farm. So join me now as we get real with April Clayton of Red Apple Orchards in Orondo, Washington, with her farming story and what the real challenges are right now on farms growing what is the state's most famous food. Let's start at UC Davis. Okay. So and you're, you, so you're a chemist. Yes, I'm a classically trained chemist. I actually have uh, my undergraduate degree is from Florida State University in biochemistry. Okay. And then uh, I spent a year working at Hanford. That was my first job out of college. And I did trace organic detection. And so actually there I got a lot of work and practice on grass chromatography, mass spectrometry, which is the tools that are used to test for residue on fruit and produce. So, you know, even though that's not what I was doing, I was familiar with the concepts of how it had to be tested. And then from there, I went on to University of California, Davis, and I got my degree in analytical chemistry. What's been the biggest challenge? You know, finding my place on the farm, becoming the advocate. It, You know, you, you want to get out here, you want to help, you know, but how do you do it? You know, how, how do you branch out to, you know, better inform people? It was finding the path to get started. That was difficult. I kind of resisted getting into farming uh, at first because I didn't want to be known as Mike's wife. I kind of wanted my own identity away from my husband. You know, I, yeah. I, I just finished my PhD. I didn't want to be, you know, oh, <laughs> the farmer, I, you know, I, right. Oh, you know, his wife. I wanted to start my own kind of right. career path in this area. So, so it was. This is interesting. It was the advocacy that brought you to the point where you could fully embrace the fact that you are a farmer. Oh yeah, it wasn't until I was in the farm bureau that I finally started calling myself a farmer. So, what about the old culture of of men and farming? And sometimes, you know, farm bureau can be a lot of you know men who've been in part of that. For how does that the go? Old boys club. Um, you know, that's just changing more and more, especially today, because farming, it's so important for farmers to be advocates. And you can see everywhere, I think it's the women who are dominating the agricultural advocacy field right now. You know, there's some great guys out there. But, you know, as I look around, I'm seeing a lot more female agricultural advocates. So, you know, we're really, you know, I think women are doing great, you know, and there are some pockets where, you know, it is still the old boys club, but, you know, here, the Schland Douglas County Farm Bureau, you know, 
I'm the president, you know, the vice president is Vicki Malloy, our secretary treasurer is Susan Van Well. I mean, it is, we're a female run, you know, yes, we have men on the board, but all the officers are female. So, you know, yes, I understand the old boys club is still there, but you know, just right here in my neck of the woods, you know, that's just not the case. I think that's happening in a lot of places. Yeah. And like I said, a lot of people haven't noticed that yet, but I think there's been a big change that people haven't noticed. And it's just starting to show that women are becoming the face of farming as much or more than men. Yes. I agree with you a hundred percent. Yes. With females becoming the advocates. When did you start trying to find that place? Um, you know, as more legislation came down, as it became harder to farm, as I could see it becoming harder to farm, it was obvious that my attention was needed here. You know, I I was having fun what I was doing, but you know, this farm, if I want my kids to have it, I have to go out and be active in securing its future for my children's future. So that's why advocacy all of a sudden became so important because it's not just, you know, my livelihood, it could possibly be my children's livelihood. And when you start to think about it, you know, when you start hearing more and more about different agricultural practices around the world and, you know, it it made me want to get more involved to spread the message about how good we're doing it here. Much more than, yeah, that's what my husband does and that's yes. his thing and I have my thing. Right, exactly. You know, we're a team. How did you meet your husband? So actually we were set up on a blind date because we're both very tall. So... <laughs> Really? Yeah. Hey, they're tall. They must be a good match. Exactly. (laughs) So, yeah, that's what we kind of like to joke about. So, uh, yeah, and it just kind of took off from there. So you meet Mike. Mm -hmm. You get married. Correct. And then what... His what did you marry into? What's his background? What, so is Mike doing? is a second generation uh, apple and cherry farmer. Uh, his father was retired from the Air Force. He was actually a Thunderbird, so he flew all over the world. And uh, when he retired, the military was offering um, you know all this wheat land to grow tree fruit on. So this uh, Braze Landing used to originally be called Military Hill because it was all military personnel. And so my father-in-law used to help run orchards for his friends in the area and then slowly bought some sold some and we're actually the last remaining military people on the hill now so so how long have you guys been married 14 years and for a long time you didn't want to really embrace the 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 agriculture side the farmer yeah title for yourself well i'd spent 10 years in school getting a degree in chemistry i didn't want to turn around and you know okay do what my husband's doing. You know, I kind of wanted to, you know, branch out on my own. And so, but I did come back to it and I'm glad I did. I mean, I love farming. It's awesome. Um, The farm community here is amazing too. And my advocacy has gotten me so far too, that in some people, in some circles, people are like, oh, you're April's husband. (laughs) So it's kind of (laughs) nice. Turns the table on, on your husband. What does he say in that case? Oh, he loves it. He thinks it's great. So actually, yeah, it's kind of funny because uh, my son had to fill out a report, you know, what first day back at school was your, where your parents do. My dad farms. My mom's the president of farming. <laughs> <laughs> like you go, son. <laughs> president of farming. Yeah. Dr. April Clayton. Yeah. <laughs> no, I never really liked being called doctor. Even when I taught, I made my students call me professor instead of doctor just because, well, 
that whole I'm I'm a PhD. I'm not an MD. So right, <laughs> there's right. a difference. <laughs> Talk about your family too. You got kids? Yes, we have two kids. Uh, John, my firstborn, is nine, and my daughter Johanna, aka JoJo, she is seven, going on thirteen. As she likes to tell everybody, <laughs> um, you know. My son definitely, he wants to be a farmer. I don't know if it's because he, you know, really wants to be a farmer. He likes the idea of, you know, riding motorcycles up and down the orchard scouting. <laughs> he really enjoys that. Um, Johanna, she, you know, she, one day she wants to be a vet. The next day she's going to be a singer. So she's at that happy age right now. Yeah. <laughs> so it's definitely fun. They definitely enjoy the orchard. And uh, I think it's a great lifestyle. I love the fact that what I do, at the end of the day, I can say, here, I grew this. I mean, that's mm-hmm. really a great accomplishment. I, I like that. And I want to have it for my kids, you know, something tangible that you can touch. So that's interesting. Your son says he wants to become a farmer. And I know from experience, having been that kid myself, we'll see what happens. Who, yeah. who knows what he decides is, is calling or what he wants to do is. Your daughter, not necessarily so much. Well, I think it's because the son's more into the big equipment, the bulldozers and things like that. And, you know, she she rides. She loves her motorcycle. Don't get me wrong. But she, you know, she's not going to go crawl around the loader like he is. (laughs) But is there, I wonder, is there kind of a gender thing going? Because it's for whatever reason, we just don't have it as much ingrained in our head that women are are, or could be or are going to be farmers when they grow up. That's what you are yeah. when you grew up. <laughs> right. Did you see yourself being a farmer? What do you think about women in farming in particular? So I have to say, you know, growing, I grew up in the city. Um, I grew up in Tallahassee, Florida. So it's uh, quite, it's quite urban. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, yeah, farming was actually the last thing on my mind that I even thought about. Um, both my um, parents were army brats. So my, so coming from a military, I kind of thought that, you know, if I didn't make it in the chemistry world, that I'd probably, you know, end up in the military world somewhere because that was kind of our family, what they did. So, yeah. So when I moved out here, it was it was really different and it was definitely a culture change for sure. I enjoyed it. Um, you know, I went from living behind a grocery store to now being 45 minutes from the nearest grocery store, you know, so. But being a person that supplies the grocery store. Yes, and being a person who supplies it. So I appreciate so much more the produce section than I ever did before. And it's also different. um, I how I buy food is different now. Um, Now that I know so much about the industry, before I used to just go for whatever was pretty and cheap. Now I actually make sure that, you know, hey, this was grown in the United States. Just because I, like I said before, I deal with the regulations, the codes and the standards. I know exactly what's going into produce grown in the United States. And that is what I want to focus on, especially being an organic grower. People always come up and ask me, what do you buy for your kids? And they're kind of shocked when I say, you know, produce from the United States. I don't care if it's organic or not. Conventional is just as good as long as it's grown here. Talk about organic. You guys are not entirely organic. Some of your stuff is, some isn't. This is the first year we're not 100% organic. Um, Our cherries used to be organic, but this is the first year that we pulled them from organic. Uh, We were having mildew issues, and the organic uh, inputs that you use to control mildew weren't working. And we were actually damaging our tree because of the amount of sprays we were putting on to try to control the mildew. Hold on. You're saying you were spraying 
competing with organic products and that was causing harm to the trees? Yes, and because of the amount that we were spraying. Um, people don't realize organic orchards... Um, Organic farming is just a different way of farming. It's not actually, you know, this great all healthy star that everyone thinks of. If you look at the original, the origin of it, it started in Europe. It actually started as a way to reuse and recycle. If it was found in nature, you can use it in your orchard. No big deal. Well, when the organic movement came here to the United States, it got changed into messaging, you know, healthy, different. But that's actually not true. Organic farming, you have to use actually a much less concentration so you're actually in the orchard three times more with the sprayer spraying and just that constant being in the orchard spraying just damaged our trees so now we're going back to conventional so we can spray less get the trees healthy again and we'll go from there if we keep production up prices stay good we'll stay with it so was there a point in time where you guys decided to go organic from conventional and switch over? Has it been an organic operation from the very beginning? We went all organic about 10, 20 years ago. And so he, my father-in-law kind of dabbled in it, but nothing really. It was actually my husband who really kind of took off with it. So Why, why did he choose to to do that that's, uh, that's a lot of work it is it is it? it's a lot harder to farm organic than it is um conventional just because of all the different inputs i mean you can't use uh, herbicides so you have to either burn weeds or hand hoe weeds or till weeds so it's a lot more intense so yeah it is a lot more involved but the premiums were there well the premium market really isn't there anymore for cherries so it just didn't make sense for us to not make as much money if we get the trees healthy again get production up we'll have more cherries we'll make more money so people won't pay more for organic cherries anymore um they will but the market is so flooded with it that buyers of grocery stores aren't willing to pay more for it and that's where i get my money from so so what the what the consumer pays at the store isn't what you get oh no farmers i okay so for an organic apple um, I get about between five and 10 cents. I need nine cents to clear, uh, to be even, break <laughs> Ten, even to on break it. even 10 cents would be a little bit of a profit. That'd be nice. And that same apple, what could I buy it for in the store? Uh, you're probably buying $1.99 for it in the store. <laughs> $1.99 for the same apple that you get five to 10 cents for. Correct. And this is a common of all of agriculture. Farmers are typically the ones who get what's left over, you know, and as the cost of doing business increases, you know, gas, you know, transportation, um, employees, wages going up, uh, storage. Basically, we pay all along the way as it goes. We're the last ones in the line after the truckers get paid, after the bills are paid at the storage shed, after the bills are paid at the grocery store, then we actually get an income. Why? Why don't you say we're sorry, we're charging more for these apples? Yeah, it's just the way of the industry. It's the way the industry works, unfortunately. You know, the apples go to the shed, they box them and make them look pretty. Then they've got the sales desk that goes and calls and says, hey, you know, how much apples would you like? You know, we'll send you 10,000 pounds and that'll go to a distribution where I'll get, you know, Safeway will take it and distribute it to all their stores. Um, we're pretty lucky in the fact that we've been organic, that most of our stuff has stayed on the West Coast. But uh, actually, it's kind of funny, this year, our cherries uh, went to Japan for the first time in a wow. long time. So yeah, it's kind of interesting too, because I heard that even though tariffs, you know, have affected China and stuff like that, what they buy is 
the premiums, the best of the best. They're Japan. Yeah, and China, all of Asia. They they don't buy the small, ugly fruit. They get the biggest, the prettiest. And uh, our cherries actually got sold individually. But we still haven't gotten our paycheck for the cherries yet. So we don't even know. So hopefully around October, we'll get all of our cherry money. And then hopefully in March, we'll have all of our apple money. What month did you pick them? July, all of July. And so, you still don't know and won't know for some time yet how much you're even going to get paid for them. Yeah, that's why farmers don't gamble. We do it every day on our farm. <laughs> that's crazy. That's <laughs> yeah. crazy. What, what does that feel like? I mean, it's to me, that tough. says stress. It is. Um, for us, the stress is once we get in the shed, we get in the shed. We're kind of, you know, can't really do anything about it at that point. So now we just got to sit back and let it ride. So, yeah, it's tough. <laughs> What's harvest like? Cherry harvest is crazy because we start when the sun is up. So we'll start as early as 4.30 um, in the morning. Cherries do not like to be picked after 80 degrees. After it gets 80 degrees, cherry doesn't like to do anything. So we'll stop harvest uh, around noon pretty much. But it's every day during the month of July because we are fast and furious trying to get the fruit off. We try to give our crew, you know, the crews have the afternoons off, all the afternoons off. And we try to give them like one day off every two weeks but it during the month of july it just gets we're so backed up we're so short on labor that it ends up being unfortunately every day so um but the pickers are happy because they're making money the whole time so they do appreciate that and then you know apple harvest is much it's a little bit slower it's not uh such a fast pace uh we have different apple varieties that are spaced out a little bit better so is there one thing or are there a few things that could knock your farm out of business? Or is this more a story of which straw is going to break the camel's back? Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, definitely losing a certification. That would hurt. If we were to ever lose our Global Gap certification, that would definitely be a nail in the coffin. You know, um, it's, I think it's the small things that's going to destroy farming. I don't think it's any one thing you know the lack of labor is definitely an issue um you know the ever-increasing cost just to do business i mean the h2a program is you know i can't even use the h2a program because it's too expensive for me so let's talk about labor a little bit because h2a that's a labor issue guest worker the federal guest worker program so what is the scoop on labor you guys just can't find enough people to work we can't um and right now we're short crew and um if they don't like the job that they're having to do that day or they don't like the pay they know they can go to the next farm over who is an h2a employee and they'll get $15.03 an hour. So we're having to compete with that. But I do want H2A to be here and stay here because my neighbor who uses H2A, that's awesome. He's bringing in guest workers. So I have a chance to actually pick up the local migrant help that wants to come and, you know, work the harvest and things like that. So, you know, if H2A were to go away, we'd all be fighting for the same people. And that there just isn't enough. There's a shortage. Every year we have a labor shortage. I, the last time we had a full crew to pick everything we needed was eight years ago, eight or nine years ago. We were much bigger then. We kind of divided off since then. So you're saying even though you aren't in the H-2A program, it helps you to have it in the local 
Yes. Uh, um, uh, being used by local neighboring farms. Right, because there's a small pool of laborers here, you know, in Washington State. And we actually are very lucky because we have um, several people from Northern California that actually come to our farm every year. And we are so thankful that we have them. But if H2A were to go away, you know, those guys, you know, thankfully they know our farm, they're coming back to us. But, you know, their friends may not come to us. They may jump ship and go to the shed, you know, that can offer those higher prices. Like the people who are using H2A right now, you know, not only is it the, you know, the $15 plus hourly wage, it's also transportation to and from country of origin, you know, living. I mean, we provide housing for our employees, but we don't provide transportation to and from country of origin. So that's, you know, extra money that someone who uses H2A can use to bump up their cost even more because um, it's not uncommon to get into uh, bidding wars with your neighbor to keep people. You know, I we've seen it, you know, locally, we've heard about it, you know, everybody on the hill pretty much pays the same price. But if someone's, you know, down on labor, and he can afford it, he'll pay an extra 50 cents. And you'll see a couple people jump ship and go there. And it, it hurts, it's hard. But you know, I can't blame them, they're going to go for the more money. And I can't blame the other, you know, farmer for raising their wages, because they need help, too. It's just it's a vicious cycle. Some people say that, though, that there isn't actually a labor shortage. If you would just, you know, pay workers more, then it wouldn't be a problem. What's your response to that? You know, yeah, it, that's just not true. As an organic grower, um, 75% of our cost is labor from everything from medical to housing to payroll, you know, all of that included. It's about 75% of our cost. I can't go much higher. You know, I, I can't spend that much more. I wish I could, but I just don't have the money in my bank, you know? And when I hear people say, oh, you just want cheap labor, that just bugs me more than anything. I mean, last year, just to get people to show up to pick Honeycrisps, we gave people $25 if they brought someone with them. Didn't just as a bonus. Picked, just as a bonus. Okay, you brought somebody with you here. $25. Great. Thanks. Here's a bucket. Go pick. And not only was it $25, we were also paying upwards of, I think, 35 bucks a bin. So they were averaging closer to, you know, the really fast guys can do a bin an hour. You know, it's typical uh, bin every two hours, though, is more like it. So anywhere from 17, 18 bucks an hour to some people making $35 an hour. And $25 just to show up that day Plus at work. A bonus. First thing. Yeah. I mean, no one's coming. That's the thing. I mean, we're throwing all the money out there, but people just aren't showing up. We just literally did not have people willing to come out and do the work. Now, about the controversial H-2A federal guest worker program, mm -hmm. you say that you like it, even though you don't use it. I like it's that it's there. I don't like the policy of it. Um, mm. Four years ago, no, five years ago now, we actually have housing on our farm that's H-2A specific because we were going to use the H-2A program because we saw this shortage of labor. Built it, finally got in, and it was actually right around the hearse thing, so water was a big issue for us as well. So we finally got everything done, ready to go. H-2A comes back and tells us, yeah, that's not going to work. We know you built it for 16 people, but that's not only going to hold 12 people. I mean, that's a huge hit. I mean, we built it to code, and then for them to and turn around, change the code. Change the code. It's kind of like hmm. we would have had to do add on another bathroom and another building. I mean, you know, seeing as how we bought, just finished building that five years ago, 
that has newer and better appliances and structure than my own house, and I'm being told it doesn't work. I mean, it's very frustrating. It's, it's hard to deal with, you know. True, you know, these are bunk situations, you know, but they're only here for a month, you know. It, they're not staying for the whole year. Our crew that stays the whole year, they have houses that they live in on the farm, which is different from the cabins, you know, so. What about how the program actually works for the people that are using it? you have an interesting vantage point because you've almost kind of been in the program, but you aren't now. You have people nearby who are, Mm -hmm. so you can see what they do. Yeah. There've been a lot of accusations about how horrible this program is. Where does that come from and how does that fit with reality? Have you seen problems? No, that just doesn't fit with reality. I mean, we all have it. Like I said, we're all regulated like you would not believe down to the bone, you know, as far as what housing looks like. If, you know, my housing was kicked out because, you know, it couldn't, you know, it was too small, needed to be bigger for 16 people. You know, I mean, when you keep changing the field goal, it makes it harder, you know, and these can, you know, yes, it's hard work. We know that. We know that it's hard work. And we try to pay them as best as we can for what we're actually getting from the fruit. But, you know, farmers are not intentionally being mean or hurting their employees. If we do not have them, we don't get the fruit in the shed. If we don't get the fruit in the shed, we don't get money. You know, we appreciate and love the help that we get. You know, we know we can't do it without them. So I really, it really bothers me when I hear people saying that, oh, you know, we're just out there abusing them. You know, we're not. You know, they're the ones who make this farm run. You know, we're the ones taking the risk. They're the ones who make it run. That's, you know, the beauty of how it works. So I I really get bugged and I don't know where it's coming from because it's just not true. You know, there are bad lawyers, there may be bad farmers. But if you're a bad farmer, you're not going to stay in the game very long because you're not going to get anybody to come work for you. And the H2A program, they'll kick you out if they think that you are being bad to employees and, you know, disrespecting them and not giving them great, you know, living conditions, then you'll get kicked out. You know, it's not like you can just go and say, hey, I want it. You know, someone's going to come on your farm and make sure and look to see if your housing, is it acceptable or is it not acceptable? What's the thing on the farm that that will keep you up at night? Uh, Market return prices. (laughs) Yeah. You you have no control over that, you know, and, and you just have to sit there and wait because we're currently, we currently have an operating loan. You know, every paycheck that we sign, you know, we're borrowing money from the bank to do that. And hopefully when I get paid my cherry money in October, I'll be able to pay off that loan and keep going again. And hopefully there'll be enough money that I won't have to get another loan. But unfortunately, I I see that's what keeps me up at night because if I can't, if I can't pay down that first loan, I'm carrying a loan and getting another one to try and start over again. I mean, that's going to bankrupt me faster than... So it's like a one-year loan kind of thing? An operation loan is about as a one-year loan, basically. So yeah. is that pretty normal for... It's pretty standard farming? for the industry to have an operation loan because, you know, I'll all of a sudden go up to 40 employees at you know, $14, $15 an hour plus payroll tax. You know, I don't have that money sitting in the bank. Farmers are land rich. We're not cash rich. We don't have that cash flow that everyone thinks we have. And one of my pet peeves is, you know, people are like, oh, that fifth generation farmer, he's just sitting there on a cash, you know, pile of gold. Well, that fifth generation farmer has probably also paid for the farm two and a half times already because of the death tax. Each time a generation dies, you know, 
in farming, we're so resilient. We don't think we're going to die, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so we don't need to plan. And then all of a sudden, the generation goes and the next generation is hit with the death tax, which is 51%. So the kids are going to have to sell off part of the farm to help pay for that tax. And so when you think about a fifth generation farmer, that's two and a half times they've already had to pay for the farm. So I, you know, I don't think people understand that, yeah, we may have inherited this, but we have paid a lot to get it. I asked, you know, what will keep you up at night? And you talk about market conditions. Do you have any stories of having gone through that where you're actually up at night and wondering what's going to happen and if you're going to make it? Uh, yeah, last year was definitely that year because we were still farming organic cherries and we had to walk away from like about 30 to 40 acres because of the mildew. So this was something that we had spent all this time farming, pushing money into. We only got half the crop of what we wanted and we're still down production, fighting to get labor, you know, and what labor we did have, we had to pay through the nose for. And so, you know, it was kind of like, man, please just, can we get a little bit of money to help cover that? You know, because all this, because all this farming, all this paychecks I've been doing, you know, those were on loans. And I had to watch half my crop go bye-bye. That that hurts. It's hard. So that last year was definitely a hard year. And then um, in the years past, hail, whenever we have hail damage, that'll keep you up at night because there's nothing you can do. It's lost. And, you know, yeah, we have insurance, but insurance never makes you whole. It, it helps with the damage, but it doesn't take care of the debt that you're in. Walk away from acres and acres of cherries. What does that look like? What do you do when you walk away? You just leave them to... Unfortunately, Rot. yeah. Unfortunately, we have to. I mean, there's because we don't have the labor to go in there and pick it to begin with because it's so expensive. We're already losing that crop. We can't afford to pay someone to go in there, pick it, and then give it away. You know, we'd love to do that. We'd love to give it to the food banks. And we open, we tell our friends when this happens, hey, come out here, you know, come get as many cherries as you want. But in all reality, they're not going to, I mean, we produce half a million pounds of cherries a year. So we're talking about, a, so losing, you know, a third of our crop, that's a lot of pounds that you're not going to be able to get rid of. You're not going to be able to get rid of it at a, you know, just giving it to your friends and you're not going to be able to get rid of it, you know, trying to pick it, going to a farmer's market. So, and it's really bad for the trees too, because if you have old fruit that's sitting on there rotting, it stresses the tree out. So it's not going to be as in good production for next year. And you've got this fruit that is now the perfect breeding ground for bad bugs. So it's it's a very bad situation to be in. You're just, you know, you're in knots because you're like, okay, I lost this year's crop. How much of next year's crop did I last lose too by not being able to take care of my trees properly by getting the fruit off them? So, and I'm leaving this fruit in there that could potentially, you know, damage my crop next year by breeding bad bugs. So it's it's a vicious cycle. So what, yeah, you said you're in knots. What, yeah, what does that really... What does it feel like when you're there? You're in bed and you can't sleep because your mind keeps running over other things. Well, how am I going to pay for this? Well, what am I going to do for that? Well, how am I going to cover this for tomorrow? And if I can't pay for, you know, this spray. And that's the other thing. These chemicals we use are highly concentrated and highly expensive. They're not cheap. We're not out there just throwing them around Mm willy-nilly because, you know, we think it's great. No, we've got this, you know... Like my husband always says, you know, you measure it with a micrometer and you unfortunately have to cut it with an axe. So, you know, we're doing as many calculations as we can to save 
money to not, you know, overuse chemicals when you don't have to. But unfortunately, you know, these things cost money. And if you can't afford that spray at that time, you know, like calcium is important for apples because we get bitter pits. Bitter pits are those, uh, they're little black dots in uh, the center of an apple. It goes through pretty far, so it's not really good for processing either because you can't just peel it and get rid of it. That's from a lack of calcium? It's a lack of calcium in the soil. And sometimes calcium can bind together in the soil. And so you may get this reading of, oh, yeah, you got calcium, but it's just not being you know, the tree just can't absorb it. So, you know, there's all these other issues you have to think of and you're sitting there worrying about that. So, you know, not being able to afford something could put you in danger for next year's crop. So you just sit there and you're like, oh man, what do you do? And there's nothing that you can do. No. So. Except in a lot of cases feel awful. And I know that can put, having lived through these kinds of things in the kind of farming I grew up around, I know it can put so much pressure on everything else, you know, relationships around the house, other decisions that aren't necessarily even directly connected. You know, I have a friend who jokes every July that she becomes a cherry widow because her husband's gone during the entire cherry harvest. So she's kind of, you know, like a widow at home (laughs) waiting, you know, hopefully have you'll come (laughs) because he's out there working. And so, you know, I understand that, you know, and luckily I'm on the farm and can, you know, help out and work too. I mean, one year there's a picture of me pregnant with my son on the backpack behind me and I'm sitting there in the field hosing down, you know, bins of cherries, you know, writing tickets for everybody, you know? So thankfully it's a family business where we can work together, but it is stressful. It's, It's, it can be stressful at times for sure. I mean, like I said before, us my farmers don't gamble. We do it every day. <laughs> you do a lot of social media. What's that like? Is it is that a positive experience to be out there and in, in that public that way? She's um, shaking her head. No. No, yeah, no. Um, social media is tough. Uh, I gotta tell you, because you know, I do kind of take it a little personally when I read, you know, people saying, Oh my gosh, you are so bad, you know, you're not paying your laborers anything, you're treating them horribly, you know. And it's like, no, that's not the case. They're actually, you know, we're trying to give them a decent wage, you know. There's been, you know, I don't think people realize there are times when we don't take home a paycheck to make sure that, you know, this is covered, you know, that's very common for owners. And I don't think people realize that, you know, and plus, we don't have, a, like you said, we only get paid once a year, you know. <laughs> once harvest is in is in and that's our paycheck you know and we don't always know what's going to be we can't calculate it out so it's it's definitely a tough field and so to have people on social media just sit there and trash you for it it's hard it it, it, yeah and i mean sometimes especially with social media today because it's no longer oh well you know I don't think that's right, blah, blah. It's like, oh, you're a terrible person. I mean, they can get downright insulting. (laughs) So it is tough. And, you know, it hurts because I have some friends that, you know, aren't quite so much friends anymore because they think, you know, I'm a slave owner. (laughs) Really? Well, no, they just, they're like, you know, your employees, you know, they, they just, they believe what they've been told. And it's like, no, come to my farm. Come talk to them, you know? But they're your friends. They, do, they don't know your character? I mean, they know my character and they know me, but, you know, it, it, they're the activists who have their belief system. It's, it's hard to change someone's mind who's, you know, ingrained. That's the way it is. So, But I am lucky because a lot of my friends who do know me, they're like, oh, wow, I had no idea. That's amazing. So it, it is fun, you know, and I am thankful for my good friends who, you know, 
and I actually have a couple of friends who have become agricultural advocates, not because they have a farm, but because they find what I do so fascinating. And so that's always, you know, that's positive and I appreciate that. But it's the negative Nancy's on social media that just kind of wear you down. <laughs> so you've actually lost friends because of the false things, the false accusations that activists have made about you. Well, it's not like all of a sudden they stop talking to me, but you know, it's like, I can tell you're not following me on social media anymore. I can tell, you know, <laughs> and it's sad because it's actually a couple of family members, you know? So, and I think also it kind of, you know, in today's political climate too, it's easier to go for a dagger than it is, you know, for a handshake. Well, thank you for opening up and telling your whole story. <laughs> Fascinating. Your journey from Tallahassee, Florida to here in Arondo, Washington and all points in between. Well, Dylan, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the, yeah. the opportunity you've given me here this today. really cool. And thanks for showing me around your farm as well. It's, it's really cool what you guys are doing here. So thank you. Keep, Come back anytime. Keep up the good work. <laughs> Thanks. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. These are the stories of the people who grow your food. Thanks for listening to the Real Food, Real People podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll be back with another episode next week. Also, check out our website, realfoodrealpeople.org. The Real Food, Real People podcast is sponsored in part by Save Family Farming giving a voice to Washington's farm families.